So it's a fascinating thing, uh, you, you, I'm sure I've all noticed it, how the meaning or the definition of words change through time. And it's important that we be, kind of be aware of those things. If we're not aware of the change of the meaning and the definition of words, we can really find ourselves in quite a bit of trouble. I was listening to a podcast well, probably about a year or so ago, and uh, he used the word thirsty in a way that I, I didn't really understand. And so I asked some of our younger guys, I said, hey, what does the word thirsty mean today? And they said, oh, <laughs> it means you're looking for sex. It's important that I knew that because I was going to title the, the, uh, the sermon, Are You Thirsty? <laughs> and then I realized when I remember that, oh, I shouldn't do that, but I see that Chris went for the clickbait anyway on the online thing, and that's what it's called, and so we <laughs> see that. But it's really quite an important thing because what Jesus is going to talk about today is this whole question, you know, if anyone is thirsty, if anyone has this desire within them, you know, so I looked into the, the Urban Dictionary and traced a little bit, you know, from thirsty, from want a glass of water, it means, and, and it sort of went through there and said that really this, this idea that it's being applied, this word for being thirsty is being applied for like a desperate, anything that we're desperate for. Anything that we think is absolutely essential for life. And so it makes sense that in today's sex-crazed world, uh, then, then they'd apply that to that. The podcast I was listening to was a financial one. It was talking about being thirsty uh, for shirt dividends. And so it makes sense then too. But Jesus, in his words today, are going to talk about being thirsty for what truly is essential, necessary, the driver for our life as a Christian and as a follower of Jesus. Because the idea is that, you know, without the Holy Spirit, it just doesn't work. Yeah. Nothing's going to happen. We're not going to know Jesus. We're not going to understand his word. We're not going to be able to worship as we worship. We're not going to be able to be in relationship with each other in the way that we should be in relationship with each other. It's the Holy Spirit that brings about all of these things, binding us together, allowing us to worship in spirit and truth, understanding his words. Because Jesus is saying then, listen, if you're desperate for what you really need, if you're desperate for really what's going to make this whole thing about a life of faith work, then come to me and drink. So let's read it. John chapter 7. Let's read the first couple of verses here. So on the last and greatest day of the festival, Jesus stood and said in a loud voice, let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, rivers of living waters will flow from within them. Literally says, will flow from their belly. By this he meant the Holy Spirit, whom those who believed in him were later to receive. Up until that time, the Spirit had not been given since Jesus had not yet been glorified. And remember that John uses this word glorified for the whole passion event, for the whole uh, arrest and crucifixion and burial and resurrection. That, that's glory in that. So that had not yet happened. Jesus says, come and drink Again and again and again and again and again. Keep on coming to me and drink because you're thirsty and I'll give you what is essential for life. You know, uh, 
we read lots of books, but every once in a while you come across a book that will really change your thinking and become kind of important for you. Uh, many, many years ago, I read a book by John Stott called Baptism and Fullness. And it's just a little skinny little book, and it's all about the Holy Spirit. And, and it's in that book that he points out that then this is the words of Jesus from an intense that means to continually come. To come again and again and again and again and again and with thirst and seek the Holy Spirit and I'll give you the Holy Spirit. And starting that book, he, he, um, he gives a bit of an image. He said, you know, there's a, there's a, a sickness, psychological sickness, and it's called, a, a person who has it is called a dipsomaniac. A dipsomaniac, okay? It comes from the Greek word uh, uh, dipso, which is the word for thirst in here. And a dipsomaniac is the, the psychological condition where you're constantly thirsty, that you never can get enough. You always think you need more water, and you're just constantly drinking. And it's a sickness. But what John Stott said is this. We need to be spiritual dipsomaniacs. Amen. It just kind of stuck with me. This whole idea that we should have this insatiable uh, desire for the Holy Spirit to come upon us, to dwell within us, to lead us, to guide us, to encourage us, to challenge us, to change us, to transform us, to empower us, all of these things. We've got to be spiritual dipsomaniacs where we just keep constantly coming back to Jesus. I have this thirst for you, for life, Holy Spirit, come. Jesus, come, fall upon us as we've been singing all about today. The spiritual dipsomaniac. We're supposed to have this driving thirst, this sense that we just can't live without the Holy Spirit. And the claim of Jesus in these verses is that he will satisfy this desperate thirst for life. Remember that all we've been talking about, it's, it's all happening in, in the feast of tabernacles as we go through John. And this is Jesus who's going to say, you know, I am the fulfillment of everything that all of these feasts have to do with. I am the one who will fulfill what the feasts point to. And you remember from a couple of weeks ago, we talked about this. I tried to set this up about giving you an overview of the feast of tabernacles. And remember that part of it was the water ceremony. Do you remember that? That's that whole deal where the high priest would go down uh, to the pool of Siloam and he'd take this golden pitcher and he'd scoop some water out. And as he was doing that, the people would read Isaiah chapter 12, verse 3. With joy, you shall draw water out of the wells of salvation. And then they'd go up into this big procession singing as they went. And then they'd, they'd process around the altar. And then when they got to Psalm 118 and were singing that, then the high priest would pour out this pitcher of water and a, and a bowl of, of wine. Now that ceremony had at least three components. The past, the present, and the future. And one of the things that it did is it said to Israel, hey, look back to our past and remember that when we were walking in the desert, that God Almighty provided water from a, from a rock twice near the beginning of the fall of the time in the wilderness and at the end of the time in the wilderness. That he sustains us and gives us what we need. And remember that he did that in the midst of grumbling and stubbornness and rebellion and lack of faith. They grumbled about God being in the desert and God provided. 
Moses, in an act when God said, go out now the second time and speak to this rock and water will come forth. Remember what Moses did? He took his staff and he hit it twice. And, and so God said, listen, that was a lack of faith that you just did that. That was unfaithful. The people are grumbling and you have joined them in unfaithfulness so you don't get to go into the promised land. But still, I'm going to provide you with what you need to live. This great celebration of God's provision. That was the look past. But this Feast of Tabernacles and the water ceremony also was part of, of what they were thinking about for the present. Because it was during this water ceremony that Israel would pray and cry out to God for rain. Because if the rains didn't come, the food didn't grow. And if the food didn't grow, then the people would starve. And so they said, so today, Lord, we can count on you to give us what we need to provide for us, what is essential for life. And so we pray for rain. But it's what the Feast of Tabernacles and the water ceremony said about the future that we really need to think about this morning. If anyone is thirsty, and as the scripture says, Rivers of living water will come from their belly. The temple, so there's, there's a couple of things we need to think about this, okay? You've got to get this background to understand what Jesus is really saying and what it has to do with our life, okay? Number one, first thing, is that the Jewish people understood that the temple was the navel or the center, the belly button of the earth, okay? And part of the scriptures that they got for that, that, that's found in Ezekiel chapter 38, verse 12. In your, in your Bible, it'll probably say in the midst, but the Hebrew word is actually belly, okay? So they understood that the temple was the navel or the central point, the focal point of all of creation. And as the rabbis thought about that, when they were commenting on, remember back in Genesis, you know, in Genesis chapter 1, it talks about God creating, and he said, you know, there was a time when, when, when it all was in chaos and, and the waters covered the earth. Remember that whole thing? And so what the rabbis believed is that, is that God began to create, separate the waters and create land by placing a rock on these, on these waters, and then he gathered the land together. And that what the rabbis taught was that that rock that God first placed down to begin the land, that was the place that the altar from the temple sat on. And that all of life would eventually come. Okay, so the temple was the navel, the center of the universe. Okay, now keep that in mind. Because then what they did is that, you know what? There's a couple of passages of scripture that apply that are important. Now, there's a big debate because you can search it out where it says, Jesus says, you know, as the scriptures say, da, da, da. There's no specific scripture that says that exactly. But what they had in mind almost for sure is at least two, okay? And the first one is Ezekiel chapter 47, okay? There's an Old Testament prophet, Ezekiel, okay? It's kind of a weird, weird book to read. It's one of those apocalyptic ones. It's kind of, it's kind of crazy. But in, in chapter 47, the prophet Ezekiel has this vision. And the vision is, as he's there in Jerusalem, and out from Jerusalem comes this, out from the temple, from under the temple comes this, this trickle of water from under the temple. Okay? And the rabbis are saying, oh, these uh, primeval waters coming up from the rock, 
into the temple. And it starts out as of a stream, and then Ezekiel's walking along, and then, you know, gets to his ankle, and then his knees, and then his thighs, and he's measuring it, and then pretty soon, the water becomes so deep he can't stand in it, and the, it becomes a river that is, that is so deep and wide that nobody can swim in it. And alongside of this river, in his vision, grow trees of life on the banks of the river. And then what the river does is it flows into the Dead Sea. And we know the Dead Sea, nothing can live in the Dead Sea because it's so salty, right? But this water that starts as a trickle from the temple comes and brings life even to the Dead Sea. And all of a sudden there's innumerable fish living in the Dead Sea and lush trees are growing along the river and God has brought life to that which is dead. That's the vision of Ezekiel chapter 47. Now, John, who wrote this gospel, but in one of his other books is the book of Revelation, right? And if you go to the book of Revelation, chapter 22, you'll see this river of life, and it's the, it's the, it's the same vision of trees growing alongside the river of life. So keep that one in your mind, okay? So out from under the temple comes this trickle, which becomes a river, which gives life, and even brings life to that which was dead. Second passage that's really important to us is... Zechariah chapter 14. It's kind of a fascinating passage. Uh, it's pretty wild, actually. So what kind of happens there, it says this. It says, listen, the day of the Lord is coming. And at first, the day of the Lord is not great news because what it is, is that uh, Jerusalem comes under, under judgment and the enemies come and they surround Jerusalem and people have to flee from the city and, and Judah and the people of God are being defeated. But then it said, but then what's going to happen is that God is going to come. And God is going to defeat the enemies of his people. And then out from under Jerusalem will flow a river. A river. And that came to the Jews to be a, a, a symbol of the messianic age. It's saying that what's going to happen is sometime the enemies of God are going to be defeated. And the Messiah is going to come. And he's going to spread over all of creation. And, and the, the Messiah will be the king and be the Lord of all the earth as this river spreads and life is given. And then in Ezekiel chapter 16, verse, chapter 14, verse 16, actually, it says this. The survivors from all the nations that have attacked Jerusalem will go up year after year to worship the king. When? the Lord Almighty, and to celebrate the festival of tabernacles. So when Jesus is saying, as the scripture is saying, he's pointing to these two incredible passages of scripture where a river of life will come up from the rock, you know, and, the, and the, these primeval waters of life will come up and flow through the altar again. And that all of a sudden the Messiah will come and this river will flow out of these gates and will flood over the land because the Messiah is here. And they came to understand these waters as being symbolic of the Spirit of God flowing over the earth from the heavenly temple, which they understood would come down from the heavens and be established on earth. Because you understand that the temple that they built on earth, they understood to be a model of the, of the ultimate temple which in heaven. And they say, what's going to happen is that that heavenly temple, that heavenly presence of God is going to descend to earth and all of this stuff is going to happen. All of this life is going to flow. The Holy Spirit is going to come on down over the earth. And Jesus is saying, 
all of this points to me. All of this stuff about the Feast of Tabernacle points to me. Even looking back at the, looking back at the water coming from the rock in Moses' day. You know what the Apostle Paul says? The Apostle Paul says this in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 4. They all drank from the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that accompanied them, and that rock was Christ. So even when they looked back and saw that, Paul said, oh yeah, really that was Jesus supplying that water. They just didn't realize it. And then Jesus is now saying, but what all was being expected, this whole hope that the water ceremony had to do, that oil is fulfilled in me, and I'm telling you now at the Feast of Tabernacle that it's true. I am here. I am, in fact, the heavenly temple come down to earth. I have arrived and all of these prophecies that you expected to come from this heavenly temple. I am now here. I am the heavenly temple come to earth. And all of this is going to come from me. That's why, you know, I get in big debates with other evangelicals who say, oh, no, we've got to rebuild the temple in Jerusalem. No. Jesus is saying, I am the temple. And I have descended from heaven. And I am here. And all that you expected the new temple to bring about, I am bringing that about. You expected waters that would bring life. And that would even bring life to that which is dead. To those whom are dead. It's going to flow through this temple. Well, I'll tell you what. Life is going to flow from me, says Jesus. And you're expecting the Spirit who gives that life to flow from the temple. Well, the Holy Spirit is flowing from my navel, Jesus says. I am the navel. I am the center of all of creation. I am the source of all that is good. I am the source of the one, Holy Spirit, who will go throughout the world and make me the king of all things. And you're expecting God to defeat his enemies and come to Jerusalem. Well, I am going to defeat all my enemies, the ultimate enemy, death, and you will come and worship together. I will gather all of the nations to the new temple, me. I will be the one. All these expectations that you have wrapped up in the Feast of Tabernacles, this great celebration of joy, I am the fulfillment of all of those promises. It's an incredible claim. It's an incredible claim that Jesus is saying that he's the fulfillment of everything that the Feast of Tabernacles points towards. Hey, there's one other thing. You know, in verse 38, where it says about, you know, come to me and drink, and rivers of, flow, of water will flow from their belly. There's two different ways that you can take that. And you'll see your different translations. If you look in your Bibles, you'll see a little footnote because it, it could be, go two ways. It could mean, could mean, number one, it could mean that, hey, this is just talking about me. And if you come to me, out of me, out of Jesus will flow the Holy Spirit. Okay? The other way in which you can understand it, it all has to do with punctuation stuff. Because it could, the other way in which you can understand it is, if you're a believer, you come to Jesus, 
You receive from Jesus the Holy Spirit. You get filled up with the Holy Spirit. And then from you, out of your life, the Holy Spirit will flow and flood your workplaces, your homes, your neighborhoods, your friendship, all of these things. You will become this channel of the Holy Spirit. And then you just keep on coming back to Jesus and getting a refill and going back out into the world that the Holy Spirit would be unleashed upon your circumstances and the people within which you take contact. Good arguments on both sides. And the East and West Church are actually kind of divided in this whole thing. But I like Rick Watts. Rick Watts says, listen, if you know anything about the Gospel of John, you know he loves the double entendres. He loves multiple meanings in these things. And he specifically was inspired by the Holy Spirit to write it this way because both are true. We have to keep going back to Jesus. Jesus is the ultimate source of the Holy Spirit. Jesus is the one who sends his spirits and hear the Father out. We keep coming back to Jesus. But then the Holy Spirit will flow through you. And the Holy Spirit will do the work of the kingdom of God through you as you allow him to. And you will become a source of joy, a source of hope, a source of life, a source of healing, a source of good news for the people that you encounter. That's quite a claim. It's quite a claim that Jesus is making, that he's the heavenly temple come down to earth and the Holy Spirit and life is going to flow through him. Well, of course, that's controversial, isn't it? And as Dave said, as we've been going through this whole passage, you see that we're constantly, the whole thing is set up as a court case. where Jesus makes this claim and calls forth some witnesses. And then the idea is, now you have to decide, do you believe it or not believe it? Do you believe that Jesus is the source of the Holy Spirit, that he's the fulfillment of all these things? Do you believe that you can continue to come back, that we're a spiritual dipsomaniacs and that we just keep coming back and being refilled with the Holy Spirit so that he can do his good work in us and through us? Do you believe it or not? And we see in here a whole bunch of different responses. Let's take a look. Let's pick it up at verse 40. On hearing his words, some of the people said, surely this man is a prophet or the prophet. Others said, no, 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 he's not a prophet. He is actually the Messiah. He's saying that he's the Messiah. He's saying that he's the fulfillment of all of these things. Listen to him. But still others said, look, how can the Messiah come from Galilee? Does not the scripture say that the Messiah will come from David's descendants and from Bethlehem, the town where David lived? Thus, the people were divided because of Jesus. Only reason for division, really, is to divide over who Jesus is. Some wanted to seize him, but no one laid a hand on him. Finally, the temple guards went back to the chief priest. Remember, they, a few verses ago, they'd sent him down. Finally, the temple guards had been watching this whole deal. They went back to the chief priests and the Pharisees who asked them, Where is he? Why didn't you arrest him? Why didn't you bring him in? No one has ever spoke the way this man does, the guards replied. You mean he's deceived you also, the Pharisees retorted? Have any of the rulers of the Pharisees, have any of us leaders that know what's going on believed in him? No. But this mob, these uneducated people, these ones that don't know the law, these ones that aren't living a clean life, this mob that knows nothing of the law, there's a curse on them. Nicodemus, remember him from, you know, chapter 3? Nicodemus, who's on this journey towards Jesus. 
Nicodemus, who'd gone to Jesus earlier and who was one of their own numbers, asked, um, does our law condemn a man without first hearing him and find out what he's been doing? And so they replied, are you from Galilee too? Are you like related to this guy? Like, what? Look into it and you'll see for yourself that a prophet does not come out of Galilee. So we can see these different responses that are possible for you in these, these incredible claims of Jesus. There are some people, they just kind of refuse to believe. They think that they have the facts. They think that they've got this worldview. They think they understand how things go. And they say, listen, there's no way that he can be the Messiah because, you know, uh, the Messiah doesn't come from Galilee. And, and this guy's from Galilee, he's from up north. The Messiah doesn't come, doesn't come from there. And, and the, the Messiah is going to be a descendant of David. He's going to come from, like, Bethlehem. And he doesn't come from that. Of course, they thought they had the facts, but they didn't have the facts. But because of their preconceived ideas, they just, you know, we just, we just can't buy this. We just can't believe this. And so we're not, we're not going to look any further. And then there's some people who, who kind of took this stuff seriously, but they were torn. They didn't know what to think. That's who the temple guards were. They, they couldn't figure it out because the chief priests and the Pharisees, the religious leaders, they sent them to arrest Jesus. But it didn't make any sense. Because they listened to what Jesus said and they saw how he was with people. Now, hey, I, what I learned this week, did you know that the temple guards, they weren't just a bunch of hired on, hired gunslingers. They were drawn from the tribe of Levi. They were drawn from the priestly tribe. And so they had some awareness of the spiritual realities. They had a pretty good awareness of, of the word. And so they were torn. What are we going to do? On the one hand, those who are supposed to be experts, they're saying that this guy is, is a charlatan and deceiving the people and a false prophet and worthy of death. But then we see before our own eyes how he is and we hear with our own ears. Nobody's taught like this. He's got this authority. It's obvious. Where does he get it from? Uh, they were torn. They couldn't decide what to do. So they just kind of didn't follow but didn't arrest him. They just sort of stumble back and, and, and say, well, you know, this is with this guy. And then there are some people who were just further down the road. And they were antagonistic towards the claims of Jesus. These are the chief priests and the Pharisees. And that kind of ticked off at these gods. You see their antagonism with them and, and how they interact with them and Nicodemus. They said to the gods, are you deceived? What they're saying is, look, you guys are Levites. You should know this stuff. You should know better. There's no way that this can be the prophets. There's no way that this guy can be from God. We're not seeing it. We don't do it. There's this great irony. Because they're supposed to be the ones, the, the chief priests and the Pharisees, they're supposed to be the ones that uphold the law and know the scriptures. And what Nicodemus says is, hey, guys, um, what we're doing here is against the law. Because it says in the book of Deuteronomy that when somebody makes an accusation on somebody, you can't condemn a person until that has been fully investigated, until they've had a chance to explain what's going on. This whole, these claims of Jesus, they haven't been investigated. We haven't had them on here. You can't, you can't just jump to the conclusion that he's this false prophet. We should be obeying the law. He's supposed to be upholding the law, and instead you're disobeying the law. And not only that, 
John points out, but they were supposed to be the ones that knew the scriptures. And they said, search for yourself. Don't you know, no prophets come from Galilee. Well, Jonah and Hosea did. You see, they, they were so antagonistic towards the claims of Jesus that they would blind themselves to what they actually already knew. And we talked about that last week, didn't we? About how, how if, we, if we, we set our will ahead of time, whether or not we're going to follow Jesus or not follow Jesus. And these guys' will was against following Jesus, so they blinded themselves to the things that they should already know. Antagonism, refusal to yield to God's will. And then there are those who, to the best of their ability, believe and search. And some said, hey, this, this guy's got to be a prophet. Another guy said, no, 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 he, he, listen, he's got to be the Messiah. He's got to be the fulfillment of all of these different things. Now, to our mind, we, can't, we know that Jesus was both. But in, in that culture, in that day and age, at that time, they saw them as two different people, the prophets and the Messiah. And so they know, oh, well, we don't really know. Where he doesn't kind of fit all of our different categories. He doesn't fit either one. But we know that he's sent from God. He's obviously a man of God. He's obviously somebody we need to debate this out and search this out and see who he is. And that's our invitation by the Holy Spirit to believe and search out. To ask ourselves the question, do I believe that Jesus is the eschatological, that just means last times, that Jesus is the temple from heaven, descended from earth, God amongst us, in our midst? Do I believe that it's out of Jesus that rivers of life will flow, that he will bring life to dead places, whether it's dead people or dead relationships or dead circumstances or dead hopes? Jesus will bring life to those things. Do I believe that Jesus is the source of the Holy Spirit? And that if I recognize and I thirst, if I'm a spiritual dipsomaniac and I thirst for the word of God to dwell within me and the Holy Spirit to take that and make it a living word and transform me and change me. If I, if I want the Holy Spirit to flow through me and make a kingdom difference in the lives of others, do I believe that Jesus is the one that I'm to come to and have that, that he's the source of the Holy Spirit who will quench our thirst? There's all kinds of reasons that we get thirst, desperate thirst. Sometimes we have this spiritual thirst because we're in such pain. But sometimes we recognize we've got a spiritual thirst because our spirits are broken and we're in despair and we just know that something's not right deep inside of us. That's a, that's a spiritual thirst. And sometimes we have a spiritual thirst because you know you've been serving Jesus for a long time and you are just exhausted and you're weary of this life and going to battle all of the time as the enemy assaults you. And you're desperate, you're parched, and you're not sure you can do it one more time. And people look in all kinds of places to have their thirst quenched. Some people fall into various kinds of addictions to numb the pain, to get rid of it. Some people uh, seek um, power or wealth or sex, to satisfy this, this thirst, this desperate longing that we have inside of us that sometimes we're not even sure where it's from. And so we'll, we'll pursue other things, desperately trying to, to meet this need. 
And Jesus says, listen, if you're thirsty, if you've got a sense of desperation for whatever reason, then, then I invite you to come to me and I'll provide you the water that gives life. I'll give you the Holy Spirit. So how do we do that? How do we come to Jesus and drink again and again and again and again and again? Well, the good news is that the first step, the easiest step is you just have to ask. You just have to ask. You know, there's this great passage in, in the Gospel of Luke. We'll, we'll jump out of John for a minute. In, in Luke uh, chapter 11. And uh, in, this, in this passage, Jesus has got this whole deal starting with verse 9. Listen to this. So I say to you, we know this passage. So I say to you, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. That sounds pretty good. For everyone who asks receives. And the one who seeks finds. And the one who knocks, the door will be opened. Which of you fathers, if your son asks for a fish, will give him a snake instead? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? So if you then, though you're evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven, here we go, give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? You know, we take that passage of Scripture and we, we kind of use it for all kinds of things. You know, ask and seek, you know, all kind of need a job, I need this, need that, need that, whatever. But Jesus' point is this, listen, the best gift that the Father can give us is himself. The best gift that the Father can give us when we come to him thirsty and desperate and needy is to give him himself, and that means to give us the Holy Spirit. Because the Holy Spirit, of course, is God. And so the first thing we just need to do is just come and ask. Come and ask. If anyone is thirsty, come and ask. Again and again and again, and I'll fill you up again and again and again and again and again because as you go through life, there's going to be times when you feel full of the Holy Spirit, and there's going to be times when you just feel depleted. And you need to come back and get a refill. The other thing that um, the Bible tells us about this, you can find in the book of Acts, which, you know, Acts of the Spirit, Acts of the Apostles, depends which way you call it. And in, in the book of Acts chapter 5, they've just kind of started out in ministry, the apostles have, and, and they're still in Jerusalem, and, and they get threatened. You know, you need, to, you need to quit preaching. And this is what they respond we are witnesses of these things. That's the things that Jesus did, resurrection. And so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. I remember years ago, I was in Acts class down there in Tennessee. And I, I just never really noticed this before. Because this whole great promise, that, hey, just come and ask. And that's good. God will give the Holy Spirit. But here what God is saying, but listen, you know, when, when you ask for the Holy Spirit, you have to really want the Holy Spirit. Which means you have to be willing to follow him. You have to be willing to obey him. You can't go around quenching the spirit, stopping his work in your life. You can't harden your heart against the things that the Holy Spirit has for you and then keep asking and expect that you're going to get it. No, as the Holy Spirit comes and as he leads you, as he empowers you, as he teaches you, as he transforms you, don't quench him. Take a risk. Step out. Follow the Holy Spirit. Because without that obedience, it just kind of dries up. So believe. Believe that God wants to give you life. Believe that the Holy Spirit desires to dwell within you. Understand that the Holy Spirit wants to lead you and guide you and empower you. And he will 
if we don't quench him and harden our hearts against him. But instead, let every single one of us and let we as a church be spiritual dipsomaniacs where we are never satisfied with the amount of the Holy Spirit's control in my life. But that instead we just keep coming back to him every morning, every day, every lunch hour, every time we eat a meal, every time we take a drink of water, a drink of coffee. Holy Spirit, Holy Spirit, I'm desperate for you. Jesus, I'm coming to you once again. Fill me up. I'm a spiritual dipsomaniac. I can never get enough of you, Holy Spirit. So come. Come, Holy Spirit, come. Fill us up. Let's take some time where you just come before God, come before Jesus, the fulfillment of the tabernacles, God's presence amongst us. And think about the areas of your life. Where are you thirsty for the Spirit, for God to act? And ask Jesus to give you the Spirit and fill us up. Just pray for that for a while. Jesus, we can get so distracted. And sometimes we can get so distracted by things around us that we don't even realize how thirsty we are. How desperate we are. And sometimes I can fool myself into thinking that that other things can quench my thirst. Success relaxation, popularity, power, money, whatever. And I can, I can chase after that stuff. But this thirst, this driving need we have within us that shows itself in all kinds of different ways is ultimately a thirst for you. Jesus, I'm so thankful that we can come to you and ask. And out of your being, as the center of the universe, will flow waters, your Holy Spirit that bring life to dead places. And we can begin to experience your work, Holy Spirit, of love. When we feel unloved, and we catch ourselves acting unlovingly. When we so desperately need joy because our hearts are filled with sorrow for people around us or our own circumstances. In this crazy world, when we desperately need just a few moments of peace, of shalom, of of a sense that all things will be okay, all things will be made right. When we're so frustrated because we've been trying again and again and again with circumstances or with people and, and we just need your patience to get over the hump because we're, go- we're going crazy. 
And we need you, Holy Spirit, to give us patience with people, with ourselves, with circumstances. And Holy Spirit, this world is so desperate, in such a desperate need for kindness. Even the way we, we speak to those who are closest to us sometimes, it's soul-crushing. Sometimes we're on the receiving end and sometimes we're on the giving end of that and we need, we need kindness, Lord. We need to reflect your character of goodness even in the face of evil. Fill us up with goodness till we overflow. Lord, we need to be faithful to you and faithful to each other and faithful to the mission. And we get tired and we get distracted and we get discouraged. Holy Spirit, you need to, you need to pick us up again from our knees so that we can walk again. Walk in your strength and in your power and be faithful to our calling. Spirit, we need your gentleness. Because I, for one, am all too ready to fight. I come under attack. My first response is not to pray, not to turn the other cheek, it's to fight. And we need this fruit of gentleness. In all the circumstances of our life, at tough times at work, people who attack us, raising our children, and we lose patience. May our words be gentle. And we need this self-control. The self-control to, to just stop for a minute and recognize our need for you, Holy Spirit. And to ask Jesus, fill me up again. Fill me up again. Fill me up again. Fill me up again. And then to be obedient to that leading, even if it's not what I want to do. To grant us the self-control to be obedient to you. Jesus, you are an amazing God. And it's amazing how all of these expectations, all of these Old Testament passages and hopes celebrated at the Feast of Tabernacles, you come and you say, hey, this is about me. I am the fulfillment of all of these things and I am the fulfillment of all of these things for your sake. And so we come, Jesus. We come thirsty and ask us to be filled again.